to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's Labor Day weekend, and to me, that always feels like the real new year, with school starting and the seasons changing, and this year seems as good as any to shake off old habits and hang-ups. What about you? Do you make back-to-school resolutions, or are you just letting it all slide this year? That's what we're talking about over on the What She Said Facebook page today, so be sure to drop on over after the show to share your thoughts. But first, let's jump into this week's show. Working mothers are feeling the burn as this pandemic threatens to wipe out decades of progress. We are seeing unprecedented job losses, and even worse than that is a lot of women have no plans to re-enter. Jennifer Reynolds, the president and CEO of Toronto Finance International, joins me to discuss what's at stake. Whether you call it your spidey senses, gut instinct, sixth sense, or intuition, Lynn Nichols wants you to know that you need to start listening to that small but powerful voice. A highly sought-after intuition expert with clientele worldwide, Lynn joins me to discuss the basics of trusting your body's most primitive instinct. This year, TIFF promises to be unlike any other, and Anne Brody has everything you need to know on today's show. She also has reviews of the long-awaited Mulan from Disney, a new documentary about the murder of Breonna Taylor, plus some exciting news on the return of a classic and beloved TV series. As if back to school wasn't stressful enough this year, there is added strain for some families with separated couples disagreeing on whether a child should or should not be in school. Anne-Marie Musson joins me to share how some families are getting through by using collaborative law, which is an alternative to traditional mediation or traditional family law. What would life be like without music? My good friend Erica M. knows more than most the power behind a good song. She joins me today to share information about Music Counts, Canada's music education charity associated with the Juno Awards. Erica will be joined by the iconic and hilarious Jan Arden next week for an intimate conversation about raising musicians. Motivation and burnout are two sides of the same coin in this COVID-19 reality, and sometimes we can have both on the same day. How to find a balance and keep your sanity as we head into shorter days and colder weather needs to be a priority. Kelly Boss from Muskoka Mind and Body joins me with some of her best tips for getting through. Thanks for joining me today. Let's get rolling with what she said right now on 105.9 The Region. Mothers are feeling the burn as this pandemic threatens to wipe out decades of progress within five short months. Many women have already had to decide between holding on to a job or caring for their family, and the repercussions of those choices will be felt for years to come. Jennifer Reynolds is the president and CEO of Toronto Finance International, a public-private partnership whose mission is to promote and develop Toronto's financial services sector and to establish its prominence as a leading global financial center. Her 20-year career in the financial services industry has included senior roles in investment banking, venture capital, and global risk management. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Happy to be speaking with you. So I recently read an article where you, uh, you know, it was on the CBC where you mentioned that women have been late, that um, have been laid off are actually not looking anymore and that you found this trend deeply concerning. So why don't we start there? Why is this such a concern? Yeah, I mean, what we saw happen in March and April was men and women lost their jobs in similar numbers, actually, about 1.5 million women, 1.5 million men. And what we've seen since then, though, is men are gradually uh, going back to work uh, in greater numbers. And so there's two things going on there. Why are men going back more than women? Number one, they're in different sectors. Women uh, tended to be in service sectors, accommodation, food, uh, health services, areas which were very, very hard hit and haven't come back yet. And quite frankly, we don't know when those will come back at this point. 
Um, but the other dynamic, and to your to your point, is those who have lost their jobs and and aren't back working. Um, Fifty percent aren't even looking at this stage from the numbers that we got in a, a recent report, and that's very disturbing. That uh, they really aren't even looking to go back. And, and the obvious question is why? Why don't they want to go back? And in many cases, it's childcare. It's um, you know the kids aren't in school, the kids are in childcare. We don't know what's happening in the fall. You know, they're going back, but they're going back part-time, which is not a solution if you're trying to figure out childcare, having your kids in part-time, and are you, can they go, if they, even if they're in high school, do you want them on public transportation? So all of these things are really factoring in, I think, to that statistic that they aren't looking because there's just so much uncertainty and they just don't know what to do. Yeah, you know, and it feels like because, you know, we, we're so, you know, my generation, your generation, we've, we've grown up with this very, you know, women's rights and we have all this, but now it feels like we've, we have this impossible decision. It's like, uh, you know, when you go to university or college and they say you can have good grades and sleep or good grades in a social life, but you can't have both. This is the same right now. Uh, you can have children and a job, but you can't have both. Yeah, it, it is. It does feel like that. I, I mean, I feel like we're having to make decisions that we didn't have to make before, quite frankly, not in this way. Uh, it, it, I'm generalizing, but it generally is the woman who is putting up her hand and saying, I won't go back to work. I'll be the one to stay home. Um, I'll be the one to give up my career for a period of time. And uh, that's a very unfortunate choice, not just when it goes to uh, gender equality, clearly that's going to set us back as women. You know, the longer you're out of the workforce, the harder it is to get back. You're never going to regain those wages you lost. Um, the wage gap was huge before COVID. It's not going to get any smaller with this happening. Um, but it really, you're sort of seeing this reversion to traditional roles in some ways. Um, and, and that's a, a bit disturbing as well. It, you know, there's gender equality piece to it, but it's also about women were earning 42% of household income prior to this pandemic. That's very, you know, we are breadwinners. We are a significant component of, of household income and we don't wanna see that lost in the future. Okay, so let's, let's go forward then. So how do we move forward from here? You know, who, who takes the charge on this? Is it businesses, is it government? Uh, you know, how do we make up these losses and move forward from this point? Well, it's a good point. One thing I would really like to impress upon people is we need to address it right now. This isn't a, oh, we'll think about this one six months from now. We've got other more pressing problems. The recovery has to include this, this uh, dynamic that's going on right now where women are being disproportionately hit. So there's a few things that need to happen. Job number one, uh, we need our schools to be open. We need childcare to be open safely. So the government needs to focus on that. How are we going to make that happen? Um, and if that takes an investment, then then so be it, because that really is critical. And it's critical to our children. I believe our children needs to be in school learning. Um, and I don't want them set back either. But women need to know that that's going to happen, that, you know, the kids are going to be back in school. They can then plan for childcare appropriately and then resume, you know, getting back to work. The other thing from a government perspective that needs to be done is if there's stimulus spending that's going to happen in the economy, if they're going to be trying to help certain sectors get back on their feet. Let's make sure that sectors which employ women are also getting some of that stimulus, not just heavily male-dominated sectors. So we have to have that gender lens. Uh, I think we should have women at the table as we're trying to determine what the right steps are uh, for the economy to recover. So where do women work is one question. They work in certain sectors. They tend to work often in small, medium-sized businesses. Let's make sure that we're not forgetting about those smaller businesses. Um, they work in the not-for-profit sector and charity sectors, which have been very hard hit and are about 70% of the employees there. So we really need to think about uh, if there's stimulus spending and, and there will be making sure that there's some equity there too. And do you think that businesses have a role to play in this as well? Um, you know, um, in, in changing the, you know, I'm, I'm hearing horror stories about women who have been let go from their jobs uh, because, you know, their children are in the background as they're trying to conduct work. Uh, that seems yeah. crazy to me that, you know, um, that businesses aren't more accommodating for that. So uh, what's the role business can have in this? And why is it so important for businesses to be taking a leading role in this? It really is. The private sector can do a lot. And, and you're right. It's not just women who have to leave the, the home who aren't going back to work, like leave the home to do their work. Um, it's women who actually work in the home as well are really struggling. It's very hard to be uh, on a Zoom call and then you know making meals or having a crying baby in the background. 
Um, so it's been a struggle there too. So I think the private sector needs to think about how they uh, can make any accommodations. One of those things that the financial services sector is thinking about is hours. You know, does it have to be nine to five? Can you give people flexibility to wake up early and do do some work then or later in the evening when there's less activity in the home or when they might have some support around? Um, scheduling meetings, flexibility around those types of things, I think, are critical. Um, those are a bit of band-aids. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. Um, it, those are temporary things, but hopefully they, they keep us in the workforce and gets over the hump. Uh, and I think just generally really encouraging women. If you do get someone who says I need to take a break until this is over, let's not lose them from the workforce. Let's make sure that they HR stays in touch, that women stay in touch, and that hopefully there's a path back to uh, their careers in the private sector. Yeah, you know, maybe it's like looking at something, you know, like, you know, like we would take a maternity leave in the past, maybe there needs to be a leave for for this COVID that you can slip back into the role you had at the same rate of pay and, and continue pick up where you left off. Because, you know, it's nice to say education needs to be fixed. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't see that happening anytime soon with the current government, particularly in Ontario. Um, I don't see that being fixed anytime. There's just not enough money being put into it. So um, those problems are going to persist, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think if we don't think really uh, innovatively about how we keep women in the workforce over the long term, we really do stand to lose our, our gains. It took a long time to have women working at the current rate that they were before the pandemic. And, and it really had elevated women from a gender, um, from in terms of our economic equality in Canada. We still had a ways to go, don't get me wrong, but but we were improving. And so every, you know, losing even a little bit hurts so much. And so we really, as I said earlier, the longer we're out, the harder it's gonna be. And we need, com- and companies worked really hard. The services sector has worked very hard to try to increase their numbers of women. Um, and I don't think that they want to fall backwards either, because that's a lot of work and investment they've put into this problem, and and no one wants to see that go out the window. So you're looking at this daily. So I'm just going to ask: Do you see any glimmers of hope on the horizon? Anything that makes you say that maybe we're gonna this is going to turn or shift a little bit in one way? Well, I do think that it's good that this topic is is really um, prominent. I think it's prominent. I think government is, is is aware of this. I think the private sector is aware of this. Uh, you know, we've certainly seen lots of reports on this. So that's one step, uh, awareness. Then, you know, the next step is what are we going to do about it? Um, and just making sure that, it, as I said earlier, it's part of the recovery. And I do, I am getting the sense that that lends towards uh how women were hit differently from men with this particular pandemic, that that has to be part of the solution. If you think about other economic crises, the last one, 2008, men were actually disproportionately hit. Things like manufacturing got hit much harder and took longer to come back um, relative to some sectors that women were in. And so there was investment in those areas. So we need to see the same thing happen with this one, right? Let, let's think about who's been hit the hardest and make sure they're included in the solution. So uh, I think now it's about execution. We, we know what the problem is. How are we going to make sure we address it successfully? Yeah, and absolutely. We, we need to remain vocal uh, and keep our voices out there about this. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Jennifer. This was great. Delighted to chat with you. Thank you. Go for it, girl. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now is Ann Brody with another amazing lineup of Can't Miss Entertainment but Anne, let's just briefly touch on TIFF because what a weird year that's going to be. Oh, I know. Media's been told not to come to Toronto. So, but on the website, I will have for everybody every link that you need to find out who's coming, who's doing conversations, who's doing Zooms, the films that are available, special events, including a Halle Berry uh, live celebration at Lightbox. And um, a handy-dandy film schedule, streaming, of course, at some in theaters, and uh, a place where you can donate. Okay, wonderful. And big, big news, really, I was so excited when I saw this. I'll let you tell everybody is... The Golden Girls, they're coming back. (laughs) You know what? This is literally just what we need going into the end of 2020 is to be able to have that available. So that's available where? 
Amazon Prime Video, and B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan, Estelle Getty, Betty White. Oh, I cannot wait. Best, best show ever. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we got new releases, though? Because you got a couple that really got me right in the feels. Yeah. Uh, Mulan is, um, it was meant to be pushed back and open in theaters, but they're going directly to streaming now. And of course, this is a live action version of the classic beloved animated film from many, many moons ago. Same story, a bit differently told. Jason Scott Lee is in it as the enemy, uh, Bori Khan, and oh, he looks very scary and damn handsome too. Um, and there's a lot of war in it. There may be a touch too much war for my taste, uh, but it's a young girl who defends her honor, her family's honor. And in those days in China, you didn't go against society and she went against society in every way. And she came out on top. Very, very affirming. And I got to ask you about, you know, these movies from Disney that are coming out straight to streaming services. Are they pulling in the numbers they would expect from the regular box office? Like, how are they doing with this? I don't know. I don't know. I'll look it up. Um, I, I, it's too early to tell right now because it's just been, you know, so far just this. Um, very hard to know. And I'm wondering if we will know, but I will keep my eyes peeled. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. You got another one that I think is, you know, very timely, highly emotional, uh, Brianna Taylor. Let's talk about that. Yeah. On FX and on Hulu. So it'll be repeated. Um, it's a New York times presents series. It's a documentary on the murder March 13th of this young woman who was in bed asleep. Um, and of course, three officers were, one was fired, two were, you know, charges dismissed or whatever. Uh, so many bullets. It was a war zone in her house. She did nothing. The facts of this case will floor you. Uh, and it actually, the good news is that it began a movement that wound up in the Brianna uh, law, which states that an officer can't do a no-knock entry into a, into a home. But she got caught up in something she had nothing to do with. Uh, it's a heartbreaking story, and it's hard to believe. It's that hard to watch. In September now, this happened in March, and nobody's been charged uh, for this. I, I believe a couple of the police officers are still on the job. They're still on the job. One was canned because there were a lot, he had a bad history. And so he, what he, he shot blind into her room. He couldn't even see her and he shot blind over and over and over again. So where can people watch this then? It's on FX and it's on, uh, and on Hulu and the streaming service. So, um, you know, it's just another one of these terrific New York times series. So highly recommended, and uh, she can't be forgotten. She was the one who inspired Say Her Name. Yeah. Oh. Okay, we've got, we've got just enough time for one more. Uh, that, so which one do you want to highlight for me? I'm thinking of ending things. That looks so weird Char and a little bit trippy, I'm not going to lie. Charlie Kaufman did it, so that's the way. And it's got Jessie Buckley, who's really in a hot moment. She's in the upcoming uh, Fargo and Jesse Plemons, who was also in the other one of the other Fargos. Um, it's about a girl who goes with a guy she's ready to break up with. They drive through the snowstorm to her parents' farm. Parents, Tony Collette and David Thewlis. Nutty. The situation is so fraught with tension. And the, the way they calm themselves down is talking about great literature and philosophy. And, and you have to really kind of listen carefully to it. Sounds odd. Then they go back, they drive back, and they wind up in this diner. Just bizarre. But it's so satisfying. I love it. It's okay, and you're saying you've heard rumors best, best picture of the year. So, Well, that's what I've heard. And so far, I'm in agreement. Excellent. Well, we'll have to watch that one. Okay, so for all of these and more, people can go to whatshesaidcoach.com. And uh, where can they follow you on Twitter, Anne? We haven't said that in a while. At Anne Brody. No. Wonderful. Please follow. That'd be fun. Okay. Thank you, Anne. When's the 
last time you trusted your intuition? Trusting your gut can be tricky and to some may even feel a little bit flighty. Lynn Nichols is a highly sought after intuition expert with clientele worldwide. She is the host of the Lynn Tuition podcast and provides online intuition elevation experiences for large groups and corporations to help people find success, fulfillment, and purpose. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Candace. Thank you so much for having me. So was it intuition that you messaged me? <laughs> it's Facebook posting. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to know, though, is how do you define intuition? Is it that feeling in your gut? Yes. It, that's very interesting you say that because I'm just working on an and on a workshop that I'm doing on Zoom on September 17th about trusting your gut, like literally the nerves in your gut. But you're right. It's knowing that you you know something, but you don't know why you know it. And it's not woo-woo. It's not reading palms and cards. It's just trusting that fleeting, subtle thought that comes into your mind. Because our brains are predicting devices. They're predictive machines. So what's happening is it's constantly comparing the sensory inputs it, it's getting and the experiences you're experiencing with memories and knowledge. And so it is pulling out things and trying to put two, to two, two and two together. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've all had those moments in life where, you know, our, our spidey senses has got, have gone off on something <laughs> or we've, you know, we've predicted something's going to happen and it does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that would be our intuition um, uh, in action. So how do we harness that then um, to serve us? Oh, that's a great question because everybody asks, how do I do it on purpose? Well, like, like anything else, we, you have to practice to be good at it. So everybody is intuitive. Everybody has that natural innate ability, that that woman's intuition, and it's a matter of practicing. So what I tell people is you don't need to go to these lengthy, long classes. You can practice while you're out at the grocery store and just walk by a person. And what's the first thought that comes into your mind? It could be happy. It could be Oh, he, he had, he split his pants this morning and whatever it is, it's never going to be validated because please do not, do not ever approach the person with that information, but it gets your brain trained to tune in. And it could be something while you're, do you know when you're driving and you get from A to B, but you don't know how you get from A to B? Right. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's the best state of mind to be in, to tune into your intuition. So when are there physical signs of intuition we should be paying attention to uh, that our body maybe uses to let us know it's time to pay attention to it? Yes, and this is the tricky part because it's so quiet. It doesn't yell, "Oh my gosh, look out." It's like, "Hey, check that." So we have to pay attention to it. Sometimes though, with your body, just like stress can create your shoulders to can make your shoulders lift up around your ears or can give you butterflies in your stomach, your body knows before your brain does. So you might feel a little, a little tingle or you just feel funny. You just don't feel right. Pay attention to that. You stop and say, what else do I need to know? And see whatever thoughts come into your mind. So how do you help people then um, get in in touch or um, understand their natural intuitive ability. Well, that's a good question because because I don't know because everybody's different. So some people some people are very good at visualizing. Some people are very good at hearing things. Some people can just know things. Some people like or like to touch, and then they get vibes off of that. So it depends on the person I'm with and we go from there. So if you're the type of person who say is more sensitive to light, then I would say, oh, let's try more visualization stuff. Or if you're the person saying, turn the TV down or why is everybody yelling? If you're sensitive that way, your actual senses are telling you something about where you may be gifted in your natural intuitive ability. So we start from where you're naturally good at and we take off 
from there. And how long does it take somebody typically to sort of access this or make it work for them? Oh, it can be, it can be immediate. It really can. And some people get very frustrated. It's, I've been practicing this for so long and it's not working. And then we dig into, well, what are you practicing? And it turns out it's something that is totally off the wall or something they were talked into doing. And it becomes a matter of, well, how do you feel when you're learning this? Well, I'm very frustrated. I don't understand it. And that frustration and the misunderstanding of it is the whole law of attraction thing. It puts pushes things further away. So it can be, it, it can be immediate. I, I promise you that. Okay, excellent. So if people want to know more about you, they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, they can find me all over the internet. So they can go to lynnnichols.com. Or if they want to pop onto my Facebook page, it's Lynn Nichols Intuition Expert. Or on Instagram, it's at Lynn underscore Nichols. And those are great places where I'd say 80% of my posts are intuition elevation experiences. So it's not just a pretty picture of a penny or my dog. It's what, here's what we're going to do now. And you pick and choose whatever ones you like and, and you run with that. And you can also find me on Apple or Spotify, Google with my Lynn Tuition podcast for the same thing. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lynn. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I would die for you. I would die for you. Joining me now is my dear friend, Erica M. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about Music Counts Band-Aid Grants. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you, Candice. I'm, but I, I never know what I'm going to have you here under what hat, but uh, it's nice to have you here talking about music because I know, obviously, you have a long and storied history with music. I think a lot of people probably don't know that you're also a songwriter. Uh, yes, I have written many a song. I think about 300 songs. We won Juno Awards, we won Country Music Awards, SoCan Awards. Music is really close to my heart. And I know it is for many parents. And as we head back to school, I am very proud to be partnering with the Juno's charity, which is called Music Counts. And it's such a lovely concept where Music Counts raises money and donates it to schools in needs to enhance their music programs. And these days, now that COVID has smashed us, so many schools are going to need extra help. And that's why the fundraiser has really started with a bang. There's one family who said they're going to match up to $40,000 of donations. So I'm here to say donate to Music Counts. And I'm happy to tell you why. And I'm happy to tell you about the exciting thing that I'm doing to make it happen. Well, I really, I want to hear about that exciting thing. I know. So uh, let's, fill in, let's fill in my audience because uh, I think it's wonderful. So let's, let's talk about that first. Okay, so the exciting thing is, come on, who is the coolest woman in the music business, aside from me? Well, wait, I'm not in the music business anymore, so it's okay. <laughs> it's obviously Jan Arden. And I am so proud that YMC is partnering with Music Counts to host a live Facebook conversation with Jan Arden and a few other musicians and some music educators. And the topic, the topic is going to be how parents can raise musicians during COVID because it's a little more complicated. And so everyone who is listening to this is welcome to join me this coming Wednesday live on the YMC Facebook page. Sorry, Thursday. Wait, is it Wednesday or Thursday? It's the 10th. That's <laughs> Thursday. Okay. I'm so excited. Uh, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And um, it's going to be an open conversation with Jen and music educators to better understand what's going to happen in schools this year with music, how parents can make that 
easier for their kids, and also the importance of donating to Music Counts and how that money is going to be spent in schools to help our kids this year in the music. And I think it's important for people listening to understand that a Facebook Live is, is not just watching an interview. It's actually interacting with oh, somebody. Yeah. So this is the opportunity to interact with Jan Arden, who, as we know, is hilarious, um, very um, social, outgoing, gregarious person. I mean, so it's just such a wonderful opportunity to actually hop online and interact with her um, in real time. She is so kind and generous and down to earth. So, of course, we're going to be talking about how she initially learned music. I'm not sure if she actually took music class. I'm not sure if her parents were musicians. So we're going to find out those kinds of things. And she'll probably tell us some hilarious stories about her evolution becoming a, a musician. And then people will be able to ask her questions. And plus, we are going to have some really amazing music educators sort of to balance the fun with some real hard information about what's happening for students in the music world. And I, I think it's fascinating how the classes are, a lot of music classes, classrooms are being shut down. So for example, money needs to go to the music program because music teachers now are going to have to buy carts to transport all the different music tools and instruments from classroom to classroom because there's not going to be a designated music room anymore. Like those are the things that people are not thinking about. They're also going to stop using a lot of wind instruments and they're going to start investing in things like MIDI keyboards that plug into computers so kids can do that at home with the teacher. Like it's fascinating how music education needs to pivot in a time of COVID. And it's interesting because, you know, we think about all the different ways COVID has affected our life and we just can't possibly wrap our heads around all of it. So when you mentioned something like this, you know, a lot of people probably didn't even think of, of this being impacted so greatly, but, you know, we're seeing choirs shut down and performances shut down, but music has to go on because it, it's so powerful in our lives. Well, it's powerful. And also the mental health benefits are so profound that it would be heartbreaking if our kids didn't have that wonderful experience of making music, learning music, and feeling the music. So music as education is not just for kids who want to play instruments. It's also about collaboration. It's also about reading music. And there is a lot of science that says those who study music do really well in math and science. Clearly, I didn't take... I was just going to say that must be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening, not playing. The music. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, if people want to know more, then uh, where can they go to find out um, how to watch this and to find out more about Music Counts? To please go to the YMC Facebook page. Um, just type in YMC Buzz on Facebook, and we'll be there. There'll be an event listing there. Please RSVP for the event listing, and Facebook will tap you on the shoulder about half an hour before the party starts. So you can join in the conversation and hopefully, hopefully donate to Music Counts. And if people want to know more about Music Counts, they can go to musiccounts.ca, correct? Exactly. That's right. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me today, Erica. Thanks, Candice. Back to school wasn't stressful enough this year. There is added strain for some families with separated couples disagreeing on whether a child should or should not be in school. Joining me to discuss is Anna Marie Musson, a Toronto family lawyer with nearly 20 years experience. After hundreds of hours sparring in courtrooms, she now practices collaborative family law, wanting to devote her professional pursuits towards helping families as they navigate the hardships of divorce. She is principal of Musson Law Firm in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so before we jump into the difficulties families are facing right now, explain to me what collaborative law is. Well, collaborative law is a process where the parties agree that they're not going to court, that the spouses understand and appreciate that they are the best people to make the decisions for their family, for their kids moving forward. So in a traditional system, the lawyers would work against each other and try to cast the spouse in the worst possible light ever 
In the collaborative process, we all work together to find solutions that make sense for the family. So it's, it's really a, a great way um, for families to deal with these issues. So is it, is it the same as mediation or a little bit different? It's different than mediation because in mediation, you still have that overarching threat of court looming in the background. Whereas in the collaborative process, we take that off the table from the get-go. So no matter what, you can't use the same collaborative lawyer if you do at some point want to go to court. So when we take that threat out of the equation altogether, it really gives people an opportunity to, to be open and to have some meaningful discussions. Okay, that's wonderful. That's great. Okay, so let's talk about how COVID-19 then has now impacted this whole entire process because it's affected everything um, in terms of separated couples from, you know, if one couple's, if one person's going out in public and one person's not, and so on and so forth. So tell me some of the issues you're seeing. Well, what was interesting was when COVID first started, um, the increase in our calls practically doubled. So we had so many extra uh, people calling us wanting to talk about separation, how they could really sort of get out of the situation because the couple was now forced to be at home and where before they had opportunities to work, go to the gym, see their friends. Now they were stuck in a relationship they didn't want to be in and they wanted a way out. So that was number one, the very interesting sort of uh, first dynamic of COVID was the increase in calls. Uh, then another interesting trend was we had a number of couples who also um, wanted us to negotiate separation agreements while they were physically still living in the same house. Because COVID really struck them in terms of their financial um, assets and in terms of their investments were down, et cetera, they couldn't afford to physically separate, but they couldn't stand one more minute being in the relationship together. So they so, were looking to go from marriage to roommates. Right. And so we actually put structure in place. So one spouse would be with the kids during certain periods of time of the day. The other spouse would have responsibilities. They would have separate parts of the house. So it really was an interesting um, sort of phenomenon that was happening, but it really sort of worked for these families and they, and they don't intend to sell anytime soon, but they got some relief. Okay, excellent. And so in terms of, of, of kids, uh, what did you see happening there? Again, we were seeing a lot of um, situations where we were really trying to get the parents to focus on the kids. So because they were in such high pressure situations being cooped up in the house together, uh, we were really trying to focus on um, the parents who were looking to separate to really make sure that they were staying as child focused as possible. So in the collaborative process, we work with a social worker. So the social worker will come in and give the kids a voice in the process. And so in the traditional court model, um, the kids don't necessarily have that as the parents sort of sparring in court. Whereas in the collaborative process, the social worker comes in, gives a voice to the child, and really helps the parents understand how their actions and the things they're doing are affecting the kids. So um, that was something else that we really focused on. Um, and of course, the other thing that we're, we're really dealing with now, which has sort of been in, over the last few weeks, has been the COVID back-to-school situation. Right. And that's really what I want to focus on because I imagine that that, they, you know, we all know that there really is no wrong answer here in if kids go back to school or not. The problem is, is when you have two people with two opposing views on where the child should be. Right. And there's so many unknowns. And I think that's what's really terrifying parents. And so what we're specifically seeing are a lot of cases where one parent wants the child to go back to school and the other thinks homeschooling is better. Um, in situations where the parents are together, much easier for them to find a solution to that problem. But when we're dealing with two divorced parents who are trying to co-parent, but who have very different views on the situation, who's right? Who gets to make that decision? And so we were using collaborative um, process to bring a social worker in to help the, the family really try to sort out these issues. Um, one of the challenges is there really was no relief for people to go to court. Uh, the court's been operating at such a uh, reduced capacity. They're dealing with backlogs. They're dealing with urgent-only issues. And so even if the couple was hoping to have a judge make a decision on their part, it really logistically and practically wasn't possible. So we really had to think outside of the box to come up with ways to help the parents find middle ground. 
Um, I can say, though, this past week, um, there were a couple of decisions that did come out of the court. And, and I do think it's a little bit interesting what the judges take on some of these, uh, this particular situation. Well, this and is what led me, led me to you before you, you share this. This is what led me to you, because when you shared this, I thought this is, this is interesting because nobody who is winning in this, uh, mm-hmm. certainly not the child. And there's always going to be an unhappy party uh, in the, in the relationship between the two parents, right? Well, someone's always not going to quote unquote win on this issue. What I found particularly interesting was really sort of the court's take on on this situation. And they're really of the mindset that if there's no harm to the child or to um, immediate family members, that really the kids need to be going back to school. And they're really falling back on the um, government who they're of the view that the government says it's safe for the kids to go back to school. We're going to support that which I found very interesting. Now, of course, that's sort of just the baseline, which is kids are going back to school if there's a dispute between homeschooling and um, in-person attendance. But what will be interesting is where there are cases of of, um, issues with health issues of a parent or health issues of the child, I I think that decision is going to be a little bit different. But really the default is kids are going back to school. That's really interesting because, you know, I imagine that the courts, you know, um, have to remove emotion from the equation. And for parents, this is a very emotional decision. I know myself um, really struggling with that decision. It's, it, and it, it comes from a place of, of pure emotion. Right. And the judges are just not equipped and nor do they want to deal with it. The judges are there to apply the black letter of law. Um, But we all know in family law, the emotions really are sort of more important in some cases to manage than the actual applying of the statutes and the law. So they're really in a bit of a bind, these judges trying to sort out these situations in such an emotionally charged um, situation. So that's why we're really um, directing a lot of parents and people to the collaborative process because we're really helping families come to middle ground, uh, come to make these decisions that are very child focused. I call it kid centric and really get them to a place where they can make a decision that makes the most sense. And what was really interesting to me this past week was I had two cases where the kids wanted to go back to school. And they were 12 and and 13. And, you know, we really wanted to give them a voice in the process as well, because they were the ones who said, wait a minute, you know, mom, I want to go back to school. And although mom had a lot of anxiety about it, we really wanted to give them a voice. Okay. So is it, is it now, we have only about a minute left here. So for people who've been in this process now, you know, they were in the courts, the courts are backlogged. Is, is, is it too late for them to jump into the collaborative law process or? Absolutely not. In fact, we've had a number of new calls from people who have said, okay, we're somewhere in the court system. We're not sure where it's not working for us. We're not getting the results as fast as we need or answers as fast as we need. And we can't stay in limbo. Uh, Limbo is just causing way too much anxiety and stress on this family. So they are moving over into the collaborative process and we're helping them sort of restart and um, almost press reboot on their um, current divorce situation. And we're really helping them at least come up with some um, immediate solutions because some of these things are really urgent and really helping them moving forward. Okay, excellent. So if people want to know more, then where can they find you? Um, they can check out our website, uh, www.mlawgroup.ca. Okay, wonderful. And are you on social media? Um, yes, we're on Twitter, at Law. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Motivation and burnout are two sides of the same coin in this COVID-19 reality. And sometimes we can have both on the same day, sometimes maybe even the same hour. How to find a balance and keep your sanity as we head into shorter days and colder weather needs to be a priority. Joining me now is Kelly Boss, a psychotherapist focusing on individual marriage and family relationships. Kelly is a well-known Canadian psychotherapist expert and has a private practice in Muskoka. 
Kelly draws her interpersonal relationships expertise from also being a busy wife and mom to two school-aged kids. Welcome back to what she said, Kelly. Thank you. I always love coming here. So let's talk about this because I, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of the show today that the new school year always feels like a new beginning, but there 100%. is this sort of weird reality we're in. And so um, we're all a little tired from the longest mar- March break ever. Yeah. <laughs> that it was, that it was. <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, we're looking for motivation to just keep going. So how yeah. do we find that elusive balance? Yeah, it feels like a bit of a marathon. And I think too, it's like first day of school for everyone. So this like newness, like what's it going to be like is a little bit different. So it's almost like we're in a marathon, but then, you know, they've kind of thrown a curveball and we're like going a whole new route back or something. Like, I don't even know. I can't even think of the analogy because this has never existed before. <laughs> you know, we don't, I don't have it readily at my fingertips. Yeah. But what I will say is, yeah, I think a lot of us are kind of starting to hit a bit of a wall. Like I'm hearing that a lot from clients. I'm hearing it from friends. I mean, I'm sure you're even nodding a little bit about this kind of like, I want to, you know, I have to keep going. I need some motivation, but I'm feeling pretty burnt out from it all. And uh, so I think that we're looking at a few things there. And one of them is, I think sometimes we just need to assess what we're doing and why, right? A lot of the things that we think are have tos that have to be on the list. Oh, well, we have to sign up for all these things again, if that's even an option yet, or we've always done this before. Uh, And maybe we just need to take a look at that. And I think if COVID's taught us anything, a lot of people are like, I don't want to go back to the way it was. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you're mentioning that because there is sort of this almost rote um, instinct that it could drive state almost that comes into yeah. play here. You know, it's Labor yeah. Day. We, and we feel we need to be doing all these things, yes. um, but there's that whole pause now to say, do I really need to? Yes, Absolutely. I've always advocated for the to-don't list. I get these things down and sometimes I really look at like, what don't I need on my to-do list? Well, there's some like big to-don'ts that don't even need to be there. And so kind of looking at that. And then, then another check of that list can be what aligns with my values, right? Like, what do I really value? Do I value all this busyness? Like maybe we, you know, value keeping the kids busy and interested or we, um, value time being a family and sitting down at the table, but we don't actually take time for it. So really looking at the things we want and making time for it's, those and editing the others. It's funny that you mentioned that, that, you know, a couple of times you've, that you've mentioned that word busy, that buzzword mm-hmm. busy. And, you know, pre COVID my to-do list was always this massive long list and it was in this quest to keep me busy. Uh, yeah. Now I find I don't need that as much. So I'm actually seeking out those simpler pursuits um, yeah. that keep me, keep me less busy, but it still feels a little bit like I'm missing something. Right. Well, and I think it's hard for us to relax. I think we've all been hurried and busy for so long. It's actually hard for us to take that time to even know what rejuvenates us. Um, some people have had a bit of more time for reflection since COVID hit. Other people have never stopped. Like, you know, like things like mental health, there's certain things that don't stop. So I think probably like your listeners are, some of them haven't had a chance to do much evaluation and some are where you're at, like kind of like I've had a bit of time and I know that there's certain things I'm trying to put in place, but something's still missing. And I really do think that we need to look at something. There's something called hurry sickness. I don't know if you've heard of it, Um, but you know, this whole idea, like, the sense of urgency, the sense that there's never enough time. And this was coined in the 50s by cardiologists that saw this like massive health problem helping with people that are just always feeling hurried and rushed all the time. How much more? 2007, in comes the iPhone, in comes, you know, Twitter, all these things happen. And now I think we're busier than ever. And we really need to look at what we're doing with our time. Yeah. That's what's the problem. And, and I think just quickly, we have about we have about a minute left, and I just wanted to touch on on focus because I find that that mm. is a really hard one because you know I'll be sitting working and my brain is off, you know, uh, thinking about what could come next in 2020. And let's face it, our bingo cards are getting pretty full. So, um, how do mm. we maintain focus? Any tips for that? Yeah. So um, 
I had really bad news a few a while ago when I learned that multitasking just meant I was doing everything less well. <laughs> I used to actually kind of brag. Uh, I'm a huge multitask. Like I get a lot. No, I'm doing everything less well. So that was kind of gutting. Um, there's lots of strategies for, for trying to keep focus. I like the Pomodoro technique. You can look it up. I know we don't have much time, so Google that. It's just kind of a simple way of like focusing for 25 minutes and then having a break before you switch tasks instead of every single task going at once and you're sure to drop one. Okay, wonderful. So if people want to connect with you, find, with you, find, uh, find out more about you or work with you, where can they go? Well, you can go to kellyboss.com. You can go to Muskoka Mind and Body, which is my practice. You can find me on Kelly Boss Therapy on Instagram. Kelly Flanagan Boss Therapy on Facebook. Uh, you can find me. If you go to my website, there's a lot of places. And it's one at kellyboss1s.com. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kelly. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidradio.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.